Hi, I'm Namusa. And I'm Adana. And this is the Africana Podcast. Now I don't know uh, what our words really are. It's okay. We'll make them up. We'll make them up. No one knows what we are saying. But it's All right. Hello, listeners. Hey, listeners. So we have a very timely guest with us today. Please help us welcome Sandra Mudune. She's an experienced published researcher with a demonstrated history of working in the public sector and development industry. And this experience spans both the areas of health system strengthening and disease epidemiology, including HIV AIDS and TB, as well as experience in WASH and education. She's an epidemiologist by training and studied at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and just resides here in Nairobi. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you. All right. So I have the first question. I'm really, really glad you're here because obviously if anyone is hearing the word epidemiology in the introduction, they know what we're about to talk about. It is the topic of the moment. And so we're glad that you're here to offer your insights um, and your takes on probably the most pressing issue um, of the day. Uh, But first, please tell us what you do and why it's important. Um, So I'm an epidemiologist, and for anybody who doesn't know what epidemiology is, it's the study of diseases and populations. I like to make a crude analogy a lot when people ask me, you know, what what does that really mean? And say that when a person is sick, they will go to a doctor who will gather information from the patient, take history, and use their training and skills to treat the patient. But when the population is sick, so to speak, we use epidemiology just as the same way a doctor would, but uh, apply this, um, some of those skills to the population to identify distribution of disease, factors underlying their source and cause, and methods for their control. Why it's important is um, epidemiology is science that requires an understanding of how political, social, and scientific factors intersect to increase uh, disease risk. And I think that's what makes epidemiology quite unique. And I think with the way the world is changing, I think we see an increasing reliance on epidemiology. And and I think, yeah, it's a, it's a science that directly imp- impacts lives. Thanks for that, Sandra. So as we are in really unprecedented times um, globally with coronavirus and the pandemic, to kind of to how or like to ground that in kind of various African experiences. My question for you is what are the particular strategies that African governments are employing as it relates to uh, corona response that you admire? And what are the strategies uh, that the continent is using that gives you pause? Okay. So across the continent, I think I can speak more generally where without picking on any, any country in particular, but I think just looking at various communities across the continent where we've seen a lot of people come together at the grassroots levels um, where governments have been slow, have failed to provide solutions. And I think that is the thing that stands out quite, quite a bit for me. And these are stories that you'll find no matter where you go on the continent. We've seen in various countries in the, the Horn of Africa, in Central Africa, where people have come together and provided free services for translation of public health messages into local languages such that everybody would be aware of what the public health messages are. We've seen in Kenya where the informal sector has come together to make masks 
for people who can't afford afford them with scrap material or with leftover material from previous um, jobs. We've seen, I think we've seen this across markets all over the continent where we've seen before the government was, you know, sat down and provided water and soap for people to be able to wash their hands as they enter the, you know, restaurants or markets where the communities have gone ahead and done that for themselves. So I think we have to give accolades to communities across the continent for just um, coming out and not waiting, taking up some action on their own. But if I'd pick out a specific um, country, I think I'd pick up Senegal and their investment in science and research capacity in response to the COVID uh, situation. The work by Senegal is, I think, is very commendable, even if their success will not be great. And but we hope it it will be. I think we must recognize the effort that they've made to ensure that the continent has access upfront to diagnostics for COVID nineteen. The fact that Senegal is trying to produce the, these diagnostics makes it cheaper and easier and quicker for African countries to access uh, these diagnostics than if it was made outside the continent. I think we all know this, and it's something that you know. No matter where you are on the continent, we, we understand that the current testing for COVID-19 requires laboratories, which are very few and far between in low-income countries. And even in the, the high-income countries, they, they can't keep up with the demand, uh, even if the labs are better resourced. So the hope is that if Senegal is able to come through with this easy-to-use diagnostic test, it would ease the burden on our local health systems as we see the outbreak continue. And if it worsens, that would actually be quite a welcomed investment on the continent. If I was to look at a country that would give me pause, I would biasly come to Kenya. And the reason I'd do that is that uh, I have first-hand knowledge on that. Seeing it, I think sometimes we see, what's interesting is you see a lot of articles online giving praise to a lot of countries on things they've done. But there's, I think there's a very big gap between what's, what countries say on paper versus what's actually happening on the ground. So let me stick to what I know firsthand from Kenya. So I think there are three things I'd like just like to highlight that gives me reason to, to pause with Kenya. And number one is managing our quarantine centers. I think um, there's still a lot we could do in terms of our quarantine plans, equipping these centers with everything they need, with trained personnel, with equipment, and just making sure that by the time someone gets in there uh, for the 14 days or however long they're supposed to be there, it's quite clear how this is managed. And we have an exit plan and you have the testing and you have you have a place to sleep. I mean, we've seen all sorts of horror stories about what happens in these quarantine centers. And the thing that I just, I find that makes me worry is how the quarantine centers are used as a, as a mode to punish people who break curfew with the assumption that if you're breaking curfew, then you are exposed as such, you should be put into a quarantine center. But this is just increasing the risk on a non-positive person to actually for subsequent infection for this person. And this just increases your chance of your probability for morbidity and mortality. And as we've seen, you know, COVID is, it's the biological factors behind this is still being understood. So I think putting people at risk for breaking curfew into a quarantine center to me seems a bit too extreme. And it's something that we just really need to rethink uh, as a whole. The second point, I think, which is something that I think we hear a cry all over the world is in terms of uh, personal protective equipment, which is PPE. Just about a week ago, the Minister of Health in Kenya was still talking about protecting health workers with PPE. This is about, this was about like, this is over 50, day, 50 days after we had our first case. And 
it, it makes you wonder and makes you worry for the healthcare workers. Um, if you're a healthcare worker, you are not protected. Your incentive to go in and actually do what you need to do to help um, flatten the curve, to use a cliche term that that's being used everywhere, is very low. So at this point, we should still not be talking about plans to protect healthcare workers, but this should be something that should be in place. And I think that's one thing that uh, worries me. And I know it's it's something that's worldwide, but I worry more for where I am because I could easily end up in one of those health facilities and require help from a health worker. And the last bit, I think, is stories that come up all the time in um, Kenya is where we use the police and the law to terrorize and militarize health and enforcement of laws to protect people during covid I think the one thing we have to recognize, and and this is where I think the public health sector needs to play, as I said, epidemiology is, you know, understanding political, social and science. And I think this is where we need to play a better role in this. And a lot of education has to be done to the community level to ensure that people understand what is happening and why it's happening, because we can never assume that everyone is on the same page and everybody understands uh, why there's a curfew and what the consequences of breaking the curfew is. And in the same regard, we also need to educate the policemen on the reasons why curfew comes to play and what they need to do as law enforcement officers during a public health crisis like a pandemic. The reason I bring this up is that in the first few days in, of um, after the first COVID case in Kenya, we had more deaths from police brutality than we did from COVID. Of course, this was taken over by COVID, but we still see instances of Uh, People jumping into rivers to avoid policemen because of the fear or policemen chasing after people and, you know, um, with dire consequences at the end of it all. We've seen cases in, um, I know this happened in Uganda, but it just shows that it's not unique to Kenya, but it's, it's something, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't address it, where we had the pregnant woman who died because the police would not let her take a motorcycle to the health center because it was after curfew. And I mean, that's just looking at it, you know, black and white, that it is, it is curfew, you cannot move. But I think it's also uh, playing our role as well and educating everybody who's involved such that it's more of a a communal effort to try and uh, manage COVID within uh, the country. Thank you for sharing that perspective. To the point about Senegal's tests, I think for me, the best advertisement to stay in my house was seeing a video of testing taking place (laughs) because what's it called? I I guess I want to know, and this might be a super basic question, but why is the test something that requires a super long, I don't know what it's called, like some, whatever it is, like to go all the way up your nose and seemingly just into the darkest cavity of your head. Like why, like why can't we use a swab? Why can't, why can't we do a blood test? Why is this? Honestly, that video is the reason I'm in the house because I do not want to have any reason to need that in my life. So I have someone, uh, I have a cousin who had that test done and he said he felt like they'd literally tickled his brain. Oh my God. Oh. <laughs> and uh, he actually recorded it for people to see it. And I think uh, just people watching someone you know actually getting the test done was a bit of a wake-up call for, for you know the people close to him. But I think it's just um just to answer to respond to you, it's the same way. If you were getting a test for TB, it'll be a sputum test because just the nature of the disease and where the, the pathogen will reside and the easiest way to, to detect it will vary from disease to disease. So for corona, it will, the pathogen will be within your nasal cavity. So that's why they do one up your, up, up your nostril, which is quite invasive, and then on, your, on a throat swab as well, because it could be anywhere along that line. So yeah, that's just, that's just all diseases, uh, the testing mode will be very different depending on, on the pathogen. 
okay. I don't know if that helps me, but okay. At least I know. <laughs> Um, so Addy, you're, you're so, not signing up to volunteer for the testing is what you're saying. Oh my gosh. Um, those videos are, oh, they make me cringe so much. Um, also now apparently coronavirus is sexually transmitted. So this really is the disease from our worst nightmares. There's just too much going on, but that's another story for another time. My question is that the WHO or World Health Organization lead is an African for the first time my uncle, Dr. Tedros from Ethiopia. Um, and so how would you rate his performance and the performance of uh, the WHO more broadly? So first, whenever people talk about him, I say we first have to acknowledge and say that we are proud to have the first person from the WHO Africa region at the helm of the WHO since 1948, when the WHO started. And we have an African voice. And I think that's the first thing I have to say before I respond to this. And Talking about WHO in these times is something that is happening more and more. And I I will respond to you by asking a question and it'll take me quite a while to get to where I'm going with this. So please bear with me. So Dr. Tedros took over in July 2017 as the DG. And um, when he took over, he, like every leader, had key priorities for the organization. And two of them were health emergencies and a transformed WHO. So first thing, to be fair to him, it's only been three years since his, it'll be three years in July, actually, since he, he took over as DG. And we can all, I'm sure, speculate as to how complex and bureaucratic the WHO is and who's, and the WHO agenda is not as black and white as we could, we would imagine. So I will not judge his performance, but let me give you something to think about, right? So what is the WHO? The WHO is, to be, give you kind of a textbook answer, is the directing and coordinating authority on all international health within the UN system. And it has the overall goal of achieving the highest level of health for all. Now, the WHO does not provide, does not directly provide health services, but coordinates global health-related efforts and um, is also charged to establish global health norms. When the WHO was first established, and for the first maybe, I'm trying to do my math, 2020 minus 1948, let me not embarrass myself. Anyway, for the first maybe 30 years or 40 years, the WHO was the main and only global actor in the field of global health. And as it was the main one, it performed this role at its best. There was no one else. So we relied on the WHO for a long time for this. But over the past maybe two decades, the global health arena has become very complex. The landscape has a lot of actors and we've seen the rise of various um, organizations and alliances and foundations, the Gates Foundation, the Global Fund. We have NGOs and foundations like um, the Clinton Health Access Initiative. We have the Rockefeller Foundation. We have Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. We have the World Bank, which is also in the health space now. And when you have all these actors in the global health space, it makes us, I think we need to step back and examine the mandate and effectiveness of the WHO in such a landscape. So the WHO has never had funding for global health activities. That has never been its mandate. But without being able to fund activities and you have the rise of all these other organizations who have billions of dollars, they start to play a, a big and critical role in global health action. And they are better placed to influence guidelines and don't have to wait for WHO to sign off things because they have the money to do it. 
So we see people like the Gates uh, Foundation um, having a, a, a bigger role and stake in the HIV policy response with the Gavi Alliance, with a lot of doing a lot of work on health system strengthening. And yeah, so this WHO slowly starts to take a back seat in this landscape. Now, when we look at pandemics and health emergencies, the same thing is true where we see MSF has come up as the lead in the humanitarian space when it comes to health emergencies. This was very clear with the Ebola crisis, where those WHO was criticized greatly during this crisis about its lack of accountability. And MSF made a name for themselves and I'm sure will be doing quite a bit of work um, given the chance during the pandemic. But at the end of the, day, the end of the day, the coordination role still belongs to WHO as MSF has clearly, as much as it's the most experienced and most active player, has not really raised their hand as wanting to have the coordination role in this. So what I'm saying is the landscape has changed. The mandate hasn't. WHO has funding issues, a lot of funding issues, and has been faced with a lot of financial and structural constraints, which makes it weaker in the global health space. So either the WHO needs to be reformed and funded to play a bigger role in the current landscape, or we need to harmonize how all these global health players work in the, in the current situation, or we need more clarity on who's the lead of which activities, and because currently it's kind, it's kind of a race. So I think putting that in perspective in terms of judging anybody, and it's not just Tedros, anybody in in the past 15 years and going forward, in such a landscape, the WHO doesn't have the strength. It doesn't have the arm that it used to. It still has the same mandate, but there are people who've come in who, um, who can challenge that a bit more. So yeah, that's my response. I I'm not going to judge the WHO is basically what I'm saying. I have a follow-up question to that, which is for the various foundations that you outlined, is there any sort, uh, speaking of harmony, is there any sort of, you know, foundation umbrella organization where these, you know, Rock your Rockefeller foundations, your Gates foundations, your Clinton health initiatives, all the organizations that you outlined and more that they come together and come up with a cohesive plan about what each of their organizations can do and the roles that they play? Or is it that every organization decides they're going to throw X amount of money at a certain challenge? And does that change in the light of of this pandemic now affecting the whole world versus certain diseases that are much more prevalent or endemic to certain areas? So in terms of umbrellas, I think it's a complex question and that there will be arenas and, um, uh, and different societies that will, will sit under depending on the disease. So you will have, um, you have the, whether it's HIV, if it's TB or, you know, um, and the, we have experts and, and known ways where that these discussions are had. And there's a lot of collaboration be between these um, organizations because it's also, you also don't want to, if, if someone's running with one thing, it doesn't make sense to be running with the same thing, especially in the same place. So for example, I'll give you, if you were working in, on HIV in Kenya, Yes, you all you might all be working on health system strengthening, and and that means um, you know working with the Kenyan government on it could be training of health workers, it could be on improving um, health facilities in order to be able to respond to to be able to test test more people, to be able to 
work on their logistics for for their drugs to be able to get it from the national level down to the down to the, the health facilities. But what they what organizations like this will do will be to work with that government. So you might find that um, a couple of counties is are focused for maybe the Rockefeller Foundation or a couple of counties are, are focused for the Gates Foundation. And that's how it's usually broken down at a granular level within countries. But at the more global level, there is there is more coordination there. But yeah, down in the country, it will be different. Whether it changes with the current uh, pandemic, those are the, some of the big conversations that I think um, that are being had. And I think you've seen uh, some, depending if it's pharmaceutical companies or if it's donors or, um, but more so, and pharmaceutical companies are always engaged by donors because you get into production because you have a donor guaranteeing you that whichever drug you're, you're making will be bought off and funded into a particular market. But because of the current pandemic, you're seeing a sh- we're seeing people um, trying to shift to more of Corona and dropping maybe it's malaria or TB diagnostics or drugs. And that does have a, another big effect on the ground for the work that is being done by the different uh, global players and eventually for the, the citizens within these countries as well. Okay, so I'm sorry, Namusa. I have one more follow-up and then I promise. <laughs> but while we're on this topic, I think the discussion around your foundations reminds me of an article, or maybe it was even a tweet at this point. I'm not quite sure the format in which this thesis was shared, but effectively the argument that the writer was trying to make or was the challenge that they were posing or question they were posing was the ethics of these large funding organizations or foundations being involved in the health space when the funder, like the epimonious funder slash founder, so whether it's Gates or Clinton or whoever else, does not have a health background. So does it make sense for folks who did not make their money in health or do not have expertise in health to or is it right or is it ethical, you know, insert the word that, you know, most applies. But does it make sense for, for, for funders who are not experts themselves in a topic to have such an outsized impact on a sector that they didn't work in? And of course, the argument is there is a one argument of you can do it's your money, you can do with it what you want. And it's their money, they can do with it what you want. But as someone who has worked in the development space and has the epidemiology background, I would be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that. I think it's fine. As long as it's not you making the decisions, I think, because they are experts out there. So as long as you have the right, um, the right constitution of expertise to inform the decisions and to and at every level, such that you know at every level there's checks and balances, such that by the time with because by the time you have that money, you also have a lot of power, and then also just the fact that you have that money gives you power. A lot of countries, you know, want the assistance. So if you if you dangle the money, they will almost jump at anything. So I think it's also making sure that it has to be very well intentioned and very well guided and very well informed at all levels. I think you can provide the funding, but you need you need to make sure that the decisions are made by the right people. Understood. Thanks, Sandra. Numisa, over to you. Thanks, Daddy. I'm gonna take it in a slightly different direction now. Sandra, from your experience, um, both from kind of like a public health background and just as a human being who moves in the world, what are the biggest sources or types of misinformation that you've seen regarding coronavirus and COVID-19? And that can be like examples from Kenya, the wider African continent, or globally. Um, So if I don't talk about Trump, I'll be doing a very big disservice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, go for it. Um, 
So please respect I mean, our privacy during this very <laughs> difficult time. Okay. We are going through some things. Just give us a moment. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I don't know if it could be for a, a man who leads a, a country with a very large population and with a big following and people who will listen. As I said, we cannot always assume that everybody is educated and understands things the same way you do. If you stand and have a press conference and talk about drinking bleach or injecting bleach or UV rays or something, people will listen and people will do it. And that has tremendous effects on people's lives. So Trump is one. And this is just speaking about it in the US. I'm sure he has influence beyond that because people are different and people relate to the people differently. So Trump is the big one. I think he's the, for me, he's a, quite a large source of misinformation. He's a very powerful man. He controls a lot um, as the president of the United States. So yeah, I think that's one. Pandemics are a scary times. If you're living in the heart of one, you are looking for information and you're looking for any way possible to try and save yourself. I can imagine if, you know, if it was someone drowning and you're grabbing onto anything and everything you can find around you to try and stay afloat. So in the same way, in the age, in the age of information, people are online, people are on WhatsApp groups, people are out there looking for any, any source of information that will protect them. They will try just to make you, whatever comes your way, you will try it. Even if it's not right, you'll do it just to protect yourself. There was the whole thing on the 5G networks that went wild and it made sense. I mean, everything's about technology and it was, I mean, eventually this has to get to us. And, you know, there was all sorts of crazy stories about what people were doing with their technology just to make sure that the 5G rays or whatever would would not get to them. And that is something that is, I think, is still going around. And um, that one has boggled a lot of people's minds. But the... Sandra, just to interrupt you for one second, though. Is it safe to clarify for our listeners that there is no scientific proof or connection between COVID-19 and 5G? Yes. Thanks. And this is, again, it all boils down to education, is that a thermal scanner will detect people who have the coronavirus. So we have thermal scanners everywhere now, and this could be just a handheld one that when you go into a store, they will scan you and tell you, you know, your temperature is fine, you can go in. And there's a lot of misconception out there that, oh, I got scanned this morning, so I don't have corona. Uh, A thermal scanner just detects whether you have fever or not. And even if a thermal scanner detects that you have fever, it doesn't mean you have corona. It just means that you have a fever. And even if a thermal scanner detects that your temperature is elevated, I would still go to a healthcare worker or run to the closest uh, pharmacy and get your get your temperature checked again. Because a lot of times these thermal scanners are not calibrated and they're used by people who are not trained to use them as a professional. And they're probably used a little bit more than they're supposed to be used in a day. So, I mean, I will tell you that many times in the past two weeks, I've been to a supermarket and they've told me, oh, 33, 34, you're fine, you can go in. And I'm like, sir, if my temperature was 33, I would not be here. So it's very obvious that's not a calibrated uh, scanner. So uh, I think that I think that's something that we have to do a little bit more about educating people. Then there's the whole thing on uh, drinking alcohol protects you from corona. Drinking alcohol sanitizes your throat, so you'll be fine. Yeah, I think that's a very that's some big misinformation that's out there as well. And big example in Kenya when our, our Nairobi governor was giving it out in the care packages because he said drinking alcohol protecting from corona was such. It's again, it's it's kind of it's kind of like Trump, but on a smaller scale because he has his his following and he's believers. And that's not the kind of message you want to put out there. Because actually, if you drink too much alcohol, it can compromise your immune system, which makes you more susceptible to disease, not just coronaviruses, but to disease. 
I have lived in Kenya for almost six years and Governor Sonko offering or putting Hennessy in care packages is probably the story that my friends from home, from home have sent me the most. <laughs> and there are many options or many things that have happened in the last six years, but you know, both good, bad, and in between and funny and, and, you know, mind boggling. But this was the one where everyone sent me something. <laughs> you know, it's true. I mean, even the, some of the celebrities in, uh, in the U S picked this up. I mean, it was, I think it was a combination of the Hennessy and, the, um, cause that's not cheap liquor and, uh, and then putting it in a care package. So, um, it's just, yeah. And it's also the time when every, at this time, everybody's online all the time. So stories will spread far and wide. But yeah, that story did, did make it make it out there. I have the next question. What are the transferable lessons from the approach to Ebola when it comes to the approach to COVID-19 across the continent, if any? So just, sorry, just to say, it's quite interesting that there are courses taught in various universities based off the Ebola um, uh, crisis to prevent the next pandemic. But hey, here we are. Um, so, you hate to see it. <laughs> yeah. I think um, the first lesson is that we need to build the national response capacity before the pandemic. And there's no time like the present. I mean, we can still do that. Fragile health systems make you more vulnerable to spread of disease. So surveillance, diagnosis, treatment protocols are all threatened in a fragile health system. So when we had the Ebola crisis, it took a while for international support to arrive when the countries were affected. But with Corona, that international support, that's not really a, an option. So countries really need to fend for themselves. And um, just, um, just trying to, to connect that to Ebola is that we can borrow from Uganda and Rwanda's reaction to COVID-19 as they suffered the brunt of Ebola and their national response systems were in place. Their reactions were swift, effective, no hesitation, and they had a clear purpose, which was to break the chain of transmission. And I think if we look at the Ugandan numbers, I mean, Rwanda was the first country to go into lockdown on the continent, and they have so far managed to keep the infection limited to Kigali, at least by the last time I checked. And also the last time I checked, this, their numbers still remained low and they had no deaths. And um, their surveillance systems were primed to detect the disease and they had measures in place to control movement. Communication channels from Ebola were used for COVID awareness and community engagement. And this last point is, is important because I think I keep talking about education and community engagement. And anyone in the public health space will tell you that com community engagement will always reduce transmission, but it also reduces the resistance to accept guidance from healthcare providers. And it ensures that communities uptake safe practices um, as demanded by whichever disease we're talking about in that context. And in the history of healthcare, we've gotten community engagement wrong time and time again. And, and that's not just in pandemics. Uh, so even in the, in the management of Ebola in uh, West Africa, I think was 2014 and DRC was 2018, the various actors on the ground got this wrong. Communities were viewed as part of the problem rather than seeing, seen as a, as, a, as a key component in tackling the epidemic. So if you don't, if you don't try and understand local cultural behaviors, and try and see how you can work work around those or work with them. If you see these cultural behaviors as obstacles to, to prevention and epidemic control, you start to create a stigma against the disease. You will have people will avoid treatment and um, and just yeah, people just don't go to the health facilities. So I think yeah, so those are some of the things that you know Uganda and Rwanda 
quickly were able to to build up build up on and just learning from that i think once this is done i think as a country or and for other countries we actually we we seriously need to learn to think about building our our response capacity to to a, an epidemic or a pandemic um in the future i think in the beginning i talked about um in my definition of epidemiology i said it's important because of the interaction of political social and scientific factors i want to highlight the political part because political will is a big thing and something i think countries have learned again i'll, I'll draw on uganda and rwanda that leadership packaging of messaging are all key again as i said uganda did not hesitate i think there was a lot of laughter and um, everybody was pointing fingers at uganda at the beginning but they they knew what they had dealt with and what they had, had to keep out of their country before in terms of ebola they've had merbag they've had yellow fever they really they really fought a lot of diseases so i think the political will has to be there for ebola i think the rest of the world as i said the who was criticized for their very slow response to ebola and the rest of the world and the who only woke up to the ebola crisis I think once there's a threat that it could spread beyond Africa to the global north and that's when the political will jumps in. And there's a lot of risks that with COVID-19 that there will be a focus on containment rather than treatment and there's the the debate on the human cost and how much it will be de-emphasized. So going back to political will if there's ever a time that we needed global leadership and this is why I say you know someone like Trump is is it's 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 quite disappointing um but on the flip side it's nice to have um a sane voice leading the WHO and hopefully other global players will also come out and speak in one voice um as to what the way forward is with COVID-19 and make sure that the human cost and minimizing loss will be our focus across the globe. I think the other thing is that um we can learn is that we need to acknowledge that a pandemic requires a broader response beyond medical provision. I think when initially with Ebola they focused on it as a health crisis, I did not rec- and they did not recognize how much of a humanitarian problem it was. They did not focus on education, they did not focus on people's livelihoods, people's source of income food security and it was all about we need to contain Ebola and when you ignore that you get a bigger problem because people can't eat people can't live people can you know and i think we've seen that as well for example in Kenya where we've had in Nairobi we've had a lockdown we people where people can't leave but a lot of businesses have shut down and there was a focus on okay we need to yes we need to flatten the curve but if people can't go to work if people can't go to the markets and and buy food if people can't fend for themselves feed themselves um then you have a bigger you have a bigger problem but you have another problem socio economic issue So I think people who dealt with the bola were quick to recognize that it's a it's a balance of that and I think in Rwanda they had they had systems of taking food to people's homes and it, as much as they had the lockdown and I think that's a big lesson that that was learned for from people who had dealt with Ebola as well. And finally scientific factors research has to be at the heart of the response. and there needs to be rapid activation of this research activities maintaining all rigor and ethical standards otherwise we could be in the same situation forever oh that was sobering <laughs> <laughs> i felt the exact same way i was just like preach sandra like this makes sense to me like check where do i like where do i sign up hopefully one day you will be leading nations potentially 
And speaking of like future, and this is obviously speculative, um, but based on your experience as an epidemiologist, do you think that we will likely see another pandemic in our lifetimes? And if so, again, this is completely speculative, what modes of transmission might it follow? So for example, would that be like saliva, blood, feces, et cetera? Okay, so let's look at the let's look at our history because when you ask about the transmission, um, so let's look at our our last maybe seventy years. Okay, so we've had a few pandemics. We had the in the fifties, I believe, we had the Asian Asian flu, and then uh, about what 10, 11 years ago, we had the H one N one swine flu pandemic. But funny, you should ask if we'll see another pandemic in our lifetime. We do have the HIV the HIV AIDS pandemic which is from 1981 to the present. If you look at the modes of transmission of these diseases, okay, so we have COVID-19, which is spread through small droplets from your nose or mouth, which, you know, are transmitted when you cough, sneeze, or speak. And then we have swine flu spread from inhaling the virus by, or by touching surfaces that are contaminated with the virus, and then touching your mouth and nose, which is kind of similar to the COVID-19. And, you know, some similar with the avian influenza virus as well. And then we have, sorry, and you will notice my bias, we have HIV, <laughs> which is transmitted sexually, which in my opinion is one of the most destructive global pandemics in history. One that is still with us, still lacks a vaccine, and which is actually under threat right now because of COVID-19 for the reasons I spoke of earlier, in the sense that there seems to be a shift in thinking from a lot of the, some of the important players in the treatment and management of um, HIV who would rather switch, drop drugs like uh, the HIV drugs, malaria, and focus more on trying to find, to work on um, COVID uh, diagnostics, which if we do not have that as a continent, which, and the continent is the one that is most heavily affected by HIV, then it would be, it would have very big implications. And a lot of the the steps that have been made to try and um, reduce uh, the prevalence of the disease in the continent could actually uh, be negated. And the same thing can be said for malaria. A lot of work has been done for malaria over the past 20 years, where as a country, Kenya, and I'll be biased because, you know, that's what I know most of from living here, we see prevalence is only in pockets of, in small areas around uh, the country, as opposed to before when it would be, you'd have whole provinces that uh, were high prevalence rates for malaria. So will we see another pandemic? I think we are living through two pandemics right now. And possibly, I I think um, for um, the past decade, there was a lot of warnings about a global pandemic uh, that would be a respiratory disease. And, And here we are. We have that. So looking at the pandemics that we've had in the past, the mode of, of transmission has been uh, more been more respiratory diseases. And then we have the HIV, which is through sexual intercourse. So the mode of transmission for the next one, your guess is as good as mine. And Sandra, just to follow up on that, is there any research or, yeah, is there any kind of scientific indication as to um, why specific modes kind of kind of continue or if there would be like a new, like, is there speculative research around what kind of new transmission forms would look like? So not necessarily like new pandemics, but ways in which um, viruses will spread. When we look at the way modes of transmission of diseases, it can be direct or indirect. So direct would be direct contact, that is me 
touching you, or as we talked about HIV, sexual intercourse, or people kissing. And then there's also droplet spread, which is done done through sneezing, coughing, talking, or, or touching an infected area. That is so. And then you have indirect, which is airborne, be- vector-borne or vehicle-borne. When something is vector-borne or vehicle-borne, it's easy to manage that because and vector-borne could be biological or mechanical, some, you know, but it's easier to manage that. I think that the difficulty comes in when it's direct because direct contact means you have to actually literally manage people's behavior, which is a whole, whole other um, topic. And as, as we've seen, you have to act, literally have people lock people up in their homes to be able to prevent that transmission of disease. So what I'm trying to say is that if you had a virus that was transmitted in any other way, it's probably easier to manage it and probably easier to to spread that transmission. But when it's direct, which is mostly what we're dealing with now, it's very hard, as we've seen over the years, coming in with interventions to stop, to bring transmission of um, HIV down to zero because sexual intercourse, sex is such a complex topic and such a complex human function that and skin to skin contact, coughing, sneezing. So those are, I think that's where the difficulty comes in. So if there was a new way, I think that would be, it would probably, if it was indirect, it's easier to manage than it would be if it was direct. I hope that answers your question. It definitely does. Thank you for explaining. I hadn't thought about it in that way. So, um, no, that's really like, in summary, humans are going to human. Um, so viruses are probably going to take advantage of humans humaning. Um, really quickly. Well, first, thank you for the perspective of the fact that we're actually living through two pandemics right now, (laughs) which, uh, yeah. Um, but I think more, I have many other questions, but really quickly to conclude, how did you get interested in this field? And what advice would you have to any of our listeners who may be interested in pursuing a career in epidemiology? So my first degree was in microbiology and I knew I wanted to stay in the public health sector. And I got advice from my first boss to pursue and to look into epidemiology. And uh, I did. And and I got my master's in it. And I've been working in epidemiology for, if I say how long, I'll tell tales about my age, uh, for a very long time. <laughs> and I've enjoyed it. So if you're interested in getting into epidemiology or in, into any into any um, field, I would always advise spending some time in the field and understanding what the field is about, because sometimes we might have misconceptions about what it is. As I said, my undergrad degree was in microbiology and I loved it. At first, I assumed I wanted to work in a hospital lab and I spent time doing that and I hated it. And um, I'm glad I did that because I then knew that's not the path that microbiology was going to take me to. And my first job, actually, I was hired for my skills in microbiology and eventually got exposed to epidemiology. And I was like, and when I was told, you know, think about it. And I was like, actually, the more I got to know about it, I really wanted to do it. Easier said than done, as um, it's not always easy to do that. But if you're not able to find a chance to actually expose yourself to that, talk to people, meet epidemiologists, meet accountants, meet um, bankers, meet um, epidemiologists, understand what they do and meet different types, meet them in different contexts, meet them at different levels. Where I started off uh, many years ago and where I am now are two completely different places. And um, I've had 
at every stage, my career branches off and I pick one or the other. And here I am. And I, I can tell you many stories about where different places I could have ended up with my career, but chose a different path. And I'm sure people who I was in school with many years ago, I've always have also ended up in different places. So I think it's before you make that commitment, do the due diligence, do yourself that favor and understand what it is you want out of your career. You might not know the long-term journey, but you might know your immediate needs and, and then, yeah, make that commitment. Thanks, Sandra. I appreciate that. Lemusa? So, Sandra, we um, have come to the end of uh, the questions for this episode, but what we do always do is ask, we have a by force or by fire um, series of questions that we ask our guests at the end of each episode um, as a way for our guests to know you a little bit better. So you won't have seen these questions ahead of time. And they're not really questions. They're more either or statements. So I will ask, uh, or Addie will start off by asking an either or question. And if you could just give us what immediately comes to mind, you can offer an explanation, but you don't have to. So Addie, do you want to kick it off for Sandra? Will do. All right, Sandra, are you ready? It's not painful, I promise. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, first question, still or sparkling? Still. Yes. <laughs> Sandra, I thought we were going to be together in this, but I guess maybe <laughs> the next one will have similar answers. <laughs> no pressure, though. So my next question for you is prevention or cure? Prevention. Okay, we're on the same on that. Addie? All right. Sweet or savory? Sweet. Kindle or book? Book. Yes. Okay, we're aligned. <laughs> guided, <laughs> guided tour or solo travel? Yikes. Is that an in-between? <laughs> uh, well, actually, at the moment, there's neither <laughs> due to coronavirus. But let's just pick with, stick with those two and see how you feel. Um, solo. Okay, strong answer. Um, and then the last uh, question is Netflix or chill? Can I Netflix and chill? <laughs> that is a final answer. Especially during these, these uh, like isolating times. Yeah. Um, Sandra, thank you so much. This was such an informative interview. We're so grateful to have had you on. Thank you for bearing with us. Uh, we had some technical difficulties earlier on, but we persevered. Um, how can our listeners find you or your work? Can I send that to you? Yeah, of course. And we'll, we'll just, we can put it in the show notes. Yeah, I can send you a couple of links. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much, Sandra.